I used to work for the BBC, but now I work for <laughs> no, TV. No, stop! The BBC. We don't have because what? That is a traditional Christmas tune. Come on, how can it you is, it tip? is. But we don't have an explicit tag on this podcast. Welcome to part two of our look at Christmas Day on BBC One, nineteen eighty-four. A couple of little things that I, I since remembered. You know, I had a erratum. Last year, we mentioned Sherlock Holmes being stoned and said, we'll come to that, and we never did. Uh, there is a Sherlock Holmes film in that whole new semi-pro style. It's just called Sherlock Holmes. It's by an entity called Antflix. I think it's even on YouTube. And Sherlock Holmes is unusually quiet and mellow. That was what that was about. It has a very interesting uh, comic book style scene transitions. If we do at any point mention around the world in 80 days, not that we have a reason to do so. You know, ages ago I said there's that guy who goes, Ooh, can you think, oh, it's meant to be somebody. Of course, I, I since found out that's Fernandel. I could be wrong now, second guessing myself. So should we just jump straight in with Mary Poppins or do you have anything you wish to clarify? You want to apologize for anything you said last time? Well, if we do that, that's going to take up the entire show. But yes, no, I think that we covered most areas. And now we are officially 10 past three in the afternoon. This is what you call peak Christmas telly. This is what the whole battle is all about. Everything else before this point has been a sort of mm, aperitif. Whereas now we're going to get to the, the meat on the bones. And then beyond. Now, my memory of 1984 is that this was a big, big deal. And maybe it wasn't in the big wide world. Maybe in my tiny little infant world, everybody was talking about Mary Poppins being shown. But it's worth mentioning Disney's archive policy, which still exists now and is getting quite some stick because apparently they're extending their archive policy to their 20th Century Fox acquisitions. This whole thing that, oh, we don't just put the movies out there so you can watch them whenever you want. No, you watch them when we say you can't watch them. And at that time, Disney's main thing was films would get re-released, but then they would get put back in the vault for another generation. And even things like home video releases being only out for a certain amount of time, I think that was the case with Fantasia when it came out on VHS. I don't think it just went on catalogue and stayed there. Yes, I remember them making a big deal about that. Yeah, they would have the adverts and they would say, look, it's available to buy and own forever and ever and ever on home video. Mary Poppins had had a theatrical re-release because I remember going to see it. Because when I saw it on TV, I noted that there wasn't an intermission in, in the version that the BBC showed on Christmas Day. Now, you talk about this being a big deal, and it certainly was. We will come to the Christmas ratings towards the end of our show. But... I'm pretty sure we'll have mentioned this before, probably mentioned it in what we were talking about last Christmas, but if you haven't already seen it, there's a fabulous, fabulous blog on the internet called Sheldon Hall on Films and Television, URL is sheldontimeshall.com, and he's got a really nice multi-part blog post about films on British TV, going way, way back, and talks about the the ratings that were involved and, and the, the, sometimes the amounts of money that changed hands for the, the channels to acquire these films and so on. And fast forwarding to 1984, he makes a very interesting point here, which doesn't appear to have affected the ratings at all. But I thought it was an interesting little aside. He talks about how the ratings for Christmas films have been in a slump for four years. But then suddenly we have TV premieres of a long-awaited classic and a recent blockbuster. The recent blockbuster will come to later on. It might have seemed to some viewers that Mary Poppins was a regular visitor to home screens because of the frequency with which extracts appeared on Disney Time, Bank Holiday Perennial. And 
when I was doing my little bits of research, going through press cuttings and what have you, I noticed this little TV film preview in the Aberdeen Press and Journal. And the reviewer just makes sort of brief reference to the fact that BBC is showing Mary Poppins and then, in parenthesis, again. Now, this, this is interesting, isn't it? Because this is the first time it's been on British TV. And yet... I'm sure that I, I would have seen that scene with the tidying up the, the playroom and what have you, because everybody's seen that. It's something that you notice, not just in things like Disney time, and I can't swear that other channels would necessarily have had access to Disney material, but definitely, if you look back at things like Tiz Wars, for example, opening titles of Tiz Wars have got clips from films in them, and that would be a regular feature, and it was something that you would see on children's shows generally, like you were talking about the other day about pop videos. Clips from popular films were a thing because they weren't as ubiquitous as, of course, they are now. So, yeah, it doesn't seem to have had an impact on the the viewership, but it's still not got quite the same mystique as perhaps... I don't know, how often would something like clips from The Sound of Music have been shown? I I get the impression that might have been a slightly bigger deal. It's something I might allude to later, but in some ways, 1984, not necessarily the first... I don't think there is a thing you can call the first video cassette Christmas, but it's something now in the mid '80s that's just going to happen more and more, and I think will eventually be reflected in schedules. But we definitely had a VHS machine by Christmas '84, and we definitely taped Mary Poppins. I can't believe you had a video by '84. What did we till '87? For goodness' sake, we only got color TV in '83, so. And I had that dream once. I had this dream once, ladies and gentlemen, where we got a video and we got a VHS tape of the Flintstones with it. And it was fantastic. And then I woke up and then realised that we didn't. What a kick in the teeth that was. Anyway, the first video Christmas was 1987 because that's when we watched Ghostbusters. Fine. Okay. Yes. But I'm just saying it's a thing, isn't it? It's going to eventually affect the way things are. I'm going to speculate that maybe later on in the day, it's a thing. Can we actually get that inserted into a pub quiz sometime? What was the first video of Christmas? I think my answer was 87. That's oh, a bit like, uh, who's the world's handsomest cricketer? <laughs> uh, if you have a look on Twitter, it's a very popular tweet going around about pedantic arguments over pub quiz answers, which also reveals that <laughs> some quiz masters are just nuts. It's also worth just putting in quotes, quiz master insisted, and on Twitter and searching. <laughs> But yes, there was one who uh, asked who was voted the world's handsomest cricketer. And when this was questioned, said, what's what my wife said? Correct answer was Mark Rampercash, by the way. But of course, we all knew that anyway. So you're there, Mary Poppins, Christmas afternoon. You allege, with certain lack of evidence being provided, you allege that you recorded Mary Poppins. But did you watch Mary Poppins on the afternoon? I think I did, yes. So I said something remarkably foolish when we were watching Mary Poppins. Because I have to be absolutely honest, listeners, because we, we really did. We did, really did watch every single scrap of BBC from 8.40 in the morning through to close down for our research for this cast. When it came to us watching Mary Poppins, I was a bit... <sighs> I was expecting just something that was really saccharine. And it was like, yeah, it'd be okay if you were like five, but, you know, otherwise, it's going to be a chore. And actually, it wasn't like that at all. I very much enjoyed it. And there was lots of... Faces to spot, and it's a fabulous production, of course. And my only criticism of it was I've just felt it was a little too long, going beyond two hours. But otherwise, yeah. While we're watching this, I'm really getting into it by about the sort of 30, 35 minute mark. And I said to Tilt, imagine not watching this on Christmas Day when it's on and 
then sort of realised, hang on a second, this is the first time I've ever seen this. So I don't know what it was that was so busy or important or whatever that was going on for me in 84 that meant I didn't watch this, but I definitely didn't. I remember this being repeated in 86 and seeing it listed and seeing a bit of it on the TV and thinking, eh. so can I say something that might get me struck off Tumblr? Go on. I sort of thought that this was a bit of a sort of girls film. Hey, let's say that now. Can you say that in 2019? Have I been blackballed? I'm sure you're working out. Well, it's just, it's all very colourful and dancey and singy and what have you. And I'm not really sure. If I had sat and watched Mary Poppins on Christmas Day, I'm not entirely sure that I would have gone into the playground in January and announced that fact in the playground. Yeah, it's not the kind of thing that you, hey, everybody, let's play Mary Poppins. But I wouldn't say it was just a girl's thing for watching. For watching, it's just like, well, right, I am a child. This is aimed at me. My parents are okay with me watching this. And there's going to be lots of spectacle. But what do I know? Because I'm not interested in sport. Well, no, th- there isn't a lot of sport going on, on Christmas Day, to be fair. But no, I mean, like I say, that, that's my sort of perception going in. But coming out of it, I thought it was very enjoyable as a, a spectacle. I think it would look fabulous if you were watching it on a big 4K screen, if there is a 4K version of it that's been released. I don't know if there is. I mean, it absolutely does merit the hoopla and everything. ITV, I think, are tacitly acknowledging that because they are screening The Man with the Golden Gun starring film's own James Bond, Roger Moore. And apparently this is the third time this has been screened. Its first screening was Christmas night in 1980. So whilst they're offering an alternative, they're not obviously competing with Like for Like, they're also sort of acknowledging that they think that Mary Poppins is going to get a big chunk of the viewers by offering a film that's been on a couple of times before. But they're both enormously lengthy. We're talking about 10 past 3 all the way through to 5.25 on both channels for the one film. One thing that really struck me watching Mary Poppins again this time is uh, how much of a valued player David Tomlinson is in this. He's doing a heck of a lot of work to make that character pompous and yet still likeable. Something I think I really have to do in the coming year is go to the Pearly Centre in LA and watch the 1949 television version with Mary Wicks as Mary Poppins, which I assume is in the same universe where Bert Fried is Columbo and Barry Nelson is James Bond, Frank Atkinson is Wurzel Gummidge. Did you not say that they've also got that Columbo at the Michael Palin Centre? Oh, yes, I've, I've been three times to watch that. <laughs> One last thing about Mary Poppins, people talk about how everybody saw Julie Andrews as a goody-goody. She's actually pretty good at getting the harsh side out of Mary Poppins. Yes, and it doesn't take long. Again, making it likeable, but she's good at conveying the distance. I think you actually made reference to this till while we're watching this, but this whole thing that's sort of cropped up over the last few decades, and I think it is a sort of sneering clip show type thing. Oh, Dick Van Dyke's accent and Mary Poppins, oh bloody hell. I really wasn't picking up on anything that was particularly amiss with it. I'm not saying it was absolutely spot on, you know, attention to detail dialect or anything, but I think it's really overstated this business as if, you know, the way that people talk about it, as if he was sort of lapsing into Cornish and Yorkshireman and all sorts all over the place. (laughs) He's a lousy Cockney, but nobody's ever said he's a lousy Bert. Nobody's ever said, I would have enjoyed that film if it hadn't been for Dick Van Dyke. Anyway, he does uh, two accents and one of them's fine, so. Dick Van Dyke is superb. Dick Van Dyke is an international treasure. I'm not really adding anything new there, I'm just putting it on the record that he is. We watched the news. That's as much as I was saying, because it was it's thought it led off with bad news. 
to give you an idea of how dedicated we were to the reconstruction as far as we could. While we were doing our bits and pieces, of course, I was having a look at things to do with 1984, popular culture and also news events and so on. The lineup that we're going to talk about on both channels, but obviously our principal focus is on BBC One, they are, at least the way they're presented, they are very entertainment heavy. So the way it is nowadays where you've got your call your midwife and your EastEnders and sometimes you might have Doctor Who or whatever it is, very drama heavy schedules. There's none of that going on here. I wonder if part of that is maybe in response to the fact that 1984 is not really the happiest of years in terms of just generally what was going on in the world. So it is quite a release. It's quite nice to see them shout after the news, way, look at all this stuff that's coming on, blankety blank, fantastic. Well, I did a minimal amount of research for this one by asking our friend Louis Barth about something. It's Les Dawson era, blankety blank. We all remember the blankety blank seating arrangement. Front row centre is... Front row centre is your big powwow comic. Dominant comic personality. Front row centre this year is Ken Dodd. Does he dominate? <laughs> Does he diddy man? <laughs> there was just something about the look on his face as Les is doing his monologue. I asked Louis Barf on Twitter because Louis Barf, uh, author of The Trials and Triumphs of Les Dawson and Happiness and Tears, the new book about Ken Dodd. So if anybody knows, Louis knows. I said, huge amount of mutual affection, he said, big mates. And it shows, and it's just fascinating to see something where Ken Dodd has become the feed man and happy to do it. Les walks out wearing a ballet dancer outfit, and Ken just says, I like your tutu, and Les says, on me, it's a 4-4. Four -four. And it's like, that's just pure feed line. Doddy knows what he's doing. <laughs> he doesn't really crack that many jokes. He just seems to be happy to be on the front row of a Les Dawson performance. <laughs> Les Dawson, in some ways, needs reevaluating. It was something that came to light when we did uh, a show about Blankety Blank and Match Game and Blankety Blanks. And Megan, who we had on for the American side, was saying how physical Les Dawson was as a comedian. I mean, if you ask somebody impersonate Les Dawson, they just kind of stand there, scowl, and crack mother-in-law jokes, exquisitely wrought mother-in-law jokes. But watching him on Blankety Blank, he's really hyper he's all over the place he's constantly changing between modes so that he's cracking jokes and look at you know old grownness to the audience and that thing of clapping his hands and stamping on the floor you know he's up he's down he's he's really interesting to watch he's just doing anything to get his laugh this was one of those things where it's like oh blankety blank you just have it on and you just end up watching les it's a really great format but would people play it properly now? I mean, over here, of course, we've got the revived match game, but everybody keeps answering penis. When you say about not just Doddy, but everybody who's there, and what, I, mean, I think, let me just go through the full lineup. The full lineup was, I think, Russell Harty. Top middle was Ruth Maddock. Top right was Derek Nimmo. Bottom left, Suzanne Danielle. On the other side of Doddy was Lorraine Chase. Everybody who's there is happy to play the game. Whereas these days with things like match game, you get the impression that nobody wants to be seen as uncool. Like Everybody's trying about. to be dominant comic personality. Mm. But nobody nobody wants to be uncool. Nobody wants to actually take this seriously. We need more people we need more people like Richard Dawson, who's not just happy to be there, but also really wants the contestants to win as well. 
Right, you haven't watched the entire run of Match Game. If you want Richard Dawson not happy to be there, well, yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, there's a certain yeah. It's worth mentioning Derek Nimmo does his part of uh, when things go that way, just start slagging off the game and talking about how utterly dreadful it is. <laughs> well, one thing I've got here in my notes is especially the fact that at one point Lester starts doing impressions. One of the contestants' surname is McKinley, which sounds like somebody John Wayne would address. So Les does his John Wayne impression, and then he does his Robert Mitchum, and then he does his Margaret Rutherford. <laughs> and now we come into the stretch of Christmas night comedy. Do we? Do we go into a stretch of Christmas night comedy? Well, we start with Heidi High and... Hoody ho. I really like the solution they have to a problem here. Heidi High has to be set in the summer. It doesn't make sense otherwise. And yet we start with Spike dressed as a funny Christmas pudding for, on the one hand, no reason, and on the other hand, of course, <laughs> brilliant. He can complain about people not understanding. <laughs> it's just like, right, okay? That's the Christmas special. He's dressed as a Christmas pudding. And now let us proceed with the rest of our July-based hijinks. It's got a double purpose as well, because this is actually the last in the series. So when this gets a repeat run later on, people aren't necessarily going to think, oh, it's a Christmas one <laughs> straight away. Yes. But I did suggest previously that there really should have been a Christmas, Christmas Heidi High. Ted and Spike get a gig as, say the policeman or the ugly sisters or something like that in a pantomime and for whatever reason then everybody else from the holiday camp turns up now that bit i haven't really worked out in too much detail but that's what needed to happen and then they're gonna have a big christmas adventure and uh, this episode of heidi high is called raffles named after the bird that can swear like a man <laughs> it's a very indulgent reference to a tweet i did <laughs> There was, I think it was in the 1940s, there was a famous bird in the US called Raffles who was notable for how well he could talk. DC Comics used to have a thing called Real Life Comics and they had a feature about Raffles and uh, I just changed some uh, speech bubbles. I'm disappointed to discover that actually wasn't legitimately how it was when it was published. So it's David Griffin here, Heidi High, so I'm afraid it's already lost points with me as this one. Something we'll come to in the coming year. We did take a look at a sitcom called The Further Adventures of Lucky Jim, which is a sequel to, well, it's actually the second series from 1982, is it? The first series was 1967, but it's based on the novel and film Lucky Jim. And watching N. Rytel, I thought that's who should have replaced Simon Cadell. It should have been N. Rytel in a duffel coat. He's a little bit band the bomb, and he's just got a slightly different approach. He thinks he's worldly, but he isn't. But you still have the whole tension between his academic vision of uh, an egalitarian Britain, just as Jeffrey Fairbrother had. But no, they decided to go with a scumbag instead. Squadron leader Clive Dempster is not a scumbag. He's just... Sort of. Are we sure he was a squadron leader? Are we sure he's not just... No, well, I don't think... Because those are the rules, right? If you're watching anything from the 60s, 70s, 80s from British television, right, and somebody comes on and claims to be ex-military and they're wearing the blazer with a logo on the breast pocket and the tie and all that, if they're a blustering bigot... Yes, they definitely were. If they're at all charming, they're a con man. That's, those are just the rules of British television. Ah, hang on a second. Turnbull. Exactly. He's blustering. He's not pompous. He's not a charmer. Well, it depends on your point of view, doesn't it? Those slackers in the studio bar all thought he was... Uh... Yeah, but they are slackers. So that's it. Charm equals evil. 
No, I think Squadron Leader Dempster is a lovely bloke. He's misunderstood. Yes, he is. I think he was in the Well, he's, he's morally suspect, but it all comes good in the end. So don't be worrying about it. Anyway. But not because of his actions. It just comes good despite everything. But the point is, this is not the Christmas show where they drug the campers. That's next year. No, that's true. And I'm going to say, right, they slip those sleeping pills to those campers. They don't know if some of the campers have already taken sleeping pills. Some of those people will not wake up. Right. Again, we're having the same conversation again. It's going back to Doctor Down Under again. The rules of the sitcom universe are different, and they are different for every single sitcom. But Heidi High is slightly more hard-nosed. It's a little bit more in the real world than Doctor Down Under. Doctor Down Under is just the hallucination of some priapic <laughs> madman. No, this is not ITV Playhouse, okay? There will be no ramifications for anything. Why is Spike naked underneath his Christmas pudding? Well, only he can answer that. Is there any first rule of comedy? Because no, it's not even the first rule of comedy, Spike, is it? It's the first rule of life. Underpants! A Christmas pudding <laughs> doesn't wear life from. You do not know. Yeah, but I think first rule of life, put on some underpants, you just never know. Uh, even all that talk about the kilt, of course, the kilt, when done correctly, is also the underpants. It's just how you bind the whole bolt of cloth you used to make it. I've worn a kilt. I wasn't sure that you were going to come out with the right punchline, so... No, what is the right punchline? Is there anything worn under the kilt? Hey, hey! Um, okay, no, but we're not going to be crude about it, okay? No, it's no, it's all in perfect working order. It's a self-cleaning joke. Is it, though? 6.35, despite the fact that his thunder has been completely stolen by your man on Play School earlier on. It is indeed the Paul Daniels Magic Christmas Show. Now, I think it's quite important to, to get that right, isn't it? Because this is not the Paul Daniels Christmas Magic Show. This is the Paul Daniels Magic Christmas Show. Well, let's talk about Paul Daniels. Another one of those figures who's kind of easy to sneer at. And Oh, Paul Daniels, and he voted Tory, and oh showbiz and all that but he was a good magician and of course we, we've said this before in some ways he was not a reaction against but he was a counterpoint to david nixon david nixon was mr nice guy paul knows how good he is and lets everybody know that he knows how good he is at this job i remember reading somewhere somebody put the point that he kind of killed magic on television off because he went bigger and bigger and bigger he did recognize that and secrets was a good idea. It just, I think, came maybe a couple of years too late. And also, I was like the speciality act he had. Of course, in this, he's got, what's his name? The King of Clowns, George Carl. The old variety shows had kind of gone, but Paul Daniels was a place where you could see things you really wouldn't see in any other show. Um, not on the um, Christmas show we watch, but I mean, like Tom Noddy and his bubble magic. That's never left me the memory of that. <laughs> Chris Cremo, who is a high-speed juggler, and then we've got here, from Germany, the Olympiads with their statuesque balancing skills. I have no memory of the Olympiads being on the show. Do you? That's true. No, I don't either. So perhaps they didn't make the final cut. Because a lot of this show, like the actual, actually the last 20 minutes of the show is taken up with one trick, which is that he's got Robert Maxwell and he's going to make him disappear. No, unfortunately he didn't. But no, he's got one million pounds from Barclays Bank, and he's got the head of Barclays, Barclays man, there to confirm it. And it comes in a big safe. Yeah, that was one hell of a escapade. And it really ratchets again, it's, up the tension. It's good magic. I, I can't really work out how he did it. And I'm not one of those people who works out how he did it and go, ah, I see. Nah, not so clever. It's like, no, if making it 
look like you did it is impressive. And that's what we know they're tricks. Uh, I can't work out how he did it. And it's televisual. While it's not close-up magic per se, you have to be able to look at it from different angles for it to have its full effect. And just the idea he's going to make a million pounds disappear. And that was always a big thing with Paul Daniels that he was keen to emphasise. And I think this might have been in comparison with David Nixon. He would always emphasise he doesn't do camera tricks. Except that time he did do a camera trick. Well, he made the camera disappear. Exactly, yes. Again, taking something that everybody knows as a cliche, no camera tricks, and then it's, I'm going to use that as the springboard for a new kind of trick. I think you discovered how that one was done, and I think you've explained it to me, and I still don't get it. I only know part of it. I only know why there's still a camera picture, but I'm, I'm still not yeah, that, entirely yeah, sure that bit, where yeah. the camera goes. Yeah, that yes. bit, yeah, that bit I, could, I could figure, but given that it's a concrete television studio floor... There's no possibility of any kind of trapdoor or anything like that. And yeah, it's it's a bit of a puzzle. But we will come back to that. Maybe we'll do Paul Daniels' biggest magic secrets revealed on a future podcast or something. We need to get that guy from the X-Files to do the narration. Whilst all this is going on... Oh, yes. Yeah, we did actually turn over to the other side for a little bit. We actually did. Now, half past five, Blankety Blank was opposed with something relatively similar, similar vein. Give us a clue. Also, with its second host now, Michael Parkinson... One of the contestants on it was Spike Milligan. Hey, And then 6pm, we have something that's akin to the Royal Variety performance. It was a show called Bring Me Sunshine, a tribute to Eric Morecambe, OBE. This has been recorded in November at the Palladium. It's hosted by Ernie Wise. And it is a charity event in aid of the British Heart Foundation. And it is one hell of a cast list. I'm not going to go through absolutely everybody that's on it, but just... In terms of the main acts, you've got, for example, Kenny Ball, you've got Max Bygraves, you've got Cannonball, James Casey with Roy Castle and Eli Woods, Petrilla Clark, you've got Suzanne Danielle, Jim Davidson, Bruce Forsyth, you've got Cherry Gillespie, you've got the Halfwits, and I think I'm right in saying that this was actually his first stage performance since 1960, was Benny Hill. Des O'Connor is there, Lane Page is there. Jimmy Tarbuck's there. There's a lot of other people who are on it who are making a sort of guest appearance, people who had worked with Morgan Wise in the past. Mike Yarbrough's on the show. It's a really, really big performance. And I get the impression that actually probably took a lot longer in the theatre than it did on TV, because on TV it's been whittled down to two and a half hours. But we watched it because we were actually... This was just a complete stroke of luck because actually it'd gone up on YouTube just a couple of months back. And we watched it, and I think we're both of the same sort of feeling that as a stage show... You felt slightly distant from it as a viewer. Whereas if this had been recorded at Thames TV or at London Weekend or something like that, it would have looked fabulous. I mean, the, the production values that somebody like David Bell, for example, could have brought to this would have been... Sunday Night the London Palladium. I guess at that time, maybe it was completely fitted out for television so they could get the angles they needed. By 1984, they just don't seem to be able to get the cameras in close enough. And also, it's not much of a tribute to Eric Morecambe. There's just long stretches where it's just people doing their acts. And you have to question their connection to any of it. And I think this really shows itself up when Des O'Connor is second from last. And the last act on is Elaine Page. I'm not saying anything against Elaine Page, but I don't really associate her with Morecambe and Wise. And if you'd ended with Des O'Connor, who tells a lot of stories and regurgitates some of the gags they used to say about him, but of course he can deliver them as well himself, so they're really his laughs. 
that would have been a perfectly appropriate way. Oh, I mean, Ernie Wise is comparing in places. Why not just have Ernie come on at the end and do something? It just felt like here's a bunch of people who said they were available and eager to appear on television under any circumstances. So we've just sort of used Eric Morecambe's passing as a peg to bring you this set's Royal Variety performance. I'm being really sour, I know, but wasn't much of a tribute in my eyes. I mean, I enjoyed the show for what it was as just a sort of raw variety show type show. Yeah, I would agree that there are probably better tributes to Eric Morecambe, even probably this Christmas. I think actually Ernie Wise hosts a BBC compilation. I think it was New Year's Eve, 84. Yeah, I think probably the, the principal thing about this is that it's an aid of the British Heart Foundation, which was a charity that Eric Morecambe was associated with. And by having it titled in this manner, it does draw people's attention to it more so than if it if it hadn't but that's taken up two and a half hour block on itv now you may think that's a very very long time to be sat in front of the one program on christmas night i think tilt knows where i'm going with this meanwhile on bbc one it's 7:25. is popular romantic comedy series written by john sullivan just good friends which of course is paul nicholas and jan francis unusually remember what we said in part one folks Michael Grade talking about the success in previous years of Last of the Summer Wine and All Creatures Great and Small having extended editions. This is all on film, apart from a little bit of VT at the beginning. No studio audience and it is 90 minutes. But at least, Till, if you've got 90 minutes, then presumably there's a lot of plot in this. I'm being sarky. If you've been following this show up to this point, you do not want to miss this because there's obviously going to be some huge plot twists. Like a, a Christmas night EastEnders going on here, isn't there? Going right back to the beginnings of the sitcom club, and we talked about Marion and Jeff, and we watched that special that showed you exactly what happened, even though it had already been described to us, and we already had pictures in our head of how it's happened. And there's something else in the back of my brain that I can't bring forth, but just that whole thing of a show that starts with a concept and allows you to fill in the blanks of the past for yourself. And then says, oh, and here it is. Yeah, this is the Phantom Menace of Just Good Friends. (laughs) So yes, this is the story of how Vince and Penny met and how their relationship proceeded and how Vince jilted Penny. And the last shot of the special is a remount of the first shot of the series. And there's no studio audience. And I found this a bit of a chore because well there's certain points where we see penny's unhappy marriage to i think he was called graham and there's a bit where she gets spaghetti sauce or something and rubs it on her face and rubs it on the walls and starts screaming yeah it's dramatic but this is meant to be a comedy and it's not so much that you shouldn't do things like that we've mentioned before there's a scene in an ever-decreasing circles where martin thinks he's been unfaithful that plays out with no jokes and the audience is still laughing and yet if they weren't there it would feel like play for today it's just like this is the christmas night special so this is kind of like royal flush before its time it's got this empty chilly atmosphere and it's not so much the presence of the dramatic elements it's just that even the comedic elements are somewhat distanced it's all on film and so the dramatic elements unbalance it completely i actually agree with you I'm not going to go all contrarian on this. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, it, just Good Friends is not actually a show I've ever really massively warmed to, in a way. And 
I'm actually now forgetting whether we've done it. I think we did do it on the sitcom club, didn't we? Because I seem to remember having some absurd notion about how because Vince was such a horrible character that in one episode he could throw himself into bed only to find out that Penny had laid a whole maybe two dozen or so old-fashioned mouse traps in it. You had a thing called Facts About Vince. Like Vince buys Asti Spumanti and pours it into champagne bottles. <laughs> Vince washes the milk sauce off Sago, adds salt and black food dye and serves it as caviar. And of course, everybody's favourite, Vince once cut off the ears of a bear in order to make a real-life honey monster. <laughs> Dyed it orange in everything. And all of those appeared in this 90-minute special. On Christmas Day, I ask you. For those of you who uh, don't know me, my attention this year has been focused on one of the most important and historic events in the history of mankind, the CW's Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yes! Oh, it's so good! In which the CW network in the US, which has managed to launch lots of successful series of DC Comics properties and has in the past had crossovers, has the big crossover. Now, effectively, for the most part, it's like the other crossovers. So it's Arrow, Flash... Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow is going to be brought into it. But as this crisis is meant to be affecting the whole of the multiverse, we've been seeing brief glimpses of other realities. Only like one line, but they've been pulling in the Tim Burton Batman films, the 1966 Batman TV series, Birds of Prey, which hardly anybody really remembers. And it's kind of left me with a hunger for big crossovers. And there's a massive opportunity lost in this Just Good Friends special, to build a John Sullivan comedy-matic universe. Because there's a party in 1976 where Vince and Penny meet. And, okay, Robert Lindsay's probably not going to turn up, but yeah, Tony Milan or George Sweeney or Mike Grady, just one of them in the background as their Citizen Smith character. We just had a little... Yes, they're all in the same reality. You don't even need that Del Boy. Just, just say Citizen Smith, just good friends. They're there. They're adjacent. Okay, I'm going to say that Mike Grady should have been there, but as Barry. Well, why not both? I mean, Brandon Routh is playing Ray Palmer and Clark Kent in Crisis on Infinite Earth, so why not say, yeah, okay, well, let's drag Roy Clark into it. George Barry Sweeney and is there. Meditation Man. Yes, George Sweeney is there. What? It's the, his character from Pot Pirates. No, I was going to say from Sweeney, even though... That could be problematic. But yeah, I think because, yeah, if he's there with his character from the Sweeney, then he's going to bring that party to a horrible. <laughs> yes, yeah, with a sawn off. Uh, one other note, by the way, about Just Good Friends, and you just alluded to the, the party scene. If you happen to own this episode of Just Good <laughs> Friends on DVT, you'll be aware that because of the presence of, I think it's the Rolling Stones that's playing throughout this particular scene, which I think is about eight minutes long. The distributor took the decision to include the scene, still rather than cut it from the DVD, because it's a, a key scene in the plot. And they had to then remove the audio, put on some generic music. I think it's actually a cover of Rolling Stones. And then put subtitles on the screen so you know what's going on. I'm not going to say how, but for reasons, the version that we watched for this <laughs> had all of that except for the subtitles. And maybe that made all the difference. Maybe we would have been praising this as the pinnacle of the night if we'd known what was said at that party. Maybe they were just chatting relentlessly about Wolfie Smith and his mates. Now you keep asking me, do I remember this? Did you watch this? I definitely remember that we watched the two Ronnies this night. Elaine Page may not be associated with Mark and Wise, but she certainly is associated with the two Ronnies because, of course, she's on this show. 
singing Windmills of Your Mind. I prefer Vanilla Fudge's version myself. Well, as we all know, the two Ronnies only made four Christmas shows. 1973, 82, 84, and 87. It says so on the DVD. If you <laughs> if you go looking for the two Ronnies on Gold or on Drama or Yesterday, then that's what you're going to get. So you may have memories of watching them on Christmas Night 85 or Christmas 81 or whatever. Forget it. They're false, right? This is it. I don't know why this is the case, but this actually fits in with something that we were discussing the other day because it was a fabulous... It's a chap's name, Mark Gibbings-Jones. Had a lovely wee... Broken TV. Yes. He was playing a fabulous wee novelty game on Twitter recently where he had a big old list of the top 20 shows that had been shown most frequently on BBC One or previously BBC Television since 1946. But with all the names blanked out and you had to guess what they were. Now, in the course of this, we were discussing between ourselves just how often the two Ronnies at Christmas is actually called that because quite often the two Ronnies at Christmas might have been the beginning of a series maybe starting on Boxing Day, something like that. And I think maybe that's how this myth is coming about, that there's only four Two Ronnies Christmas shows, because there are many more. If you've got the full box set, I've got it within touching distance here. There's plenty of them. But it's just one of those things that has come about. And so I actually saw a clip of this very one just the other day on Gold. Uh, So almost certainly you'll have seen this one. This is the one with Patrick Troughton and with Peter Wingard, as well as Elaine Page. I really like that sketch with Patrick Troughton because in some ways it reaches back to the beginnings of television sketch comedy that time we watched Alfred Marks' Time. Alfred Marks would explain at the top what the concept was and then we'd just watch it play out and play out and play out like it was Big Train. <laughs> Whereas this, we're now into such a television-savvy era, they don't need to explain the concept. We don't even know what the concept is until it breaks. So, I mean, the two Ronnies, I suppose, had kind of replaced Morecambe and Wise, hadn't they? As BBC One's comedy variety. And not talking about the heights they hit, not talking about their fundamental quality. But if you had to design a comedy sketch show to go out on Christmas night, I think the pattern set by the two Ronnies has an advantage over Morecambe and Wise. Morecambe and Wise are Morecambe and Wise. Everything they do is fixed in those characters, whereas the two Ronnies can switch. They will do jokes themselves behind the desks, and then we will get maybe a sketch with two of them, then a solo spot from Ronnie B, then... What is the significance? Those two tramps, they have their own title sequence. I know there's no words come up. And their pictures are there in the little inset. And I like it, but it gives a really odd feeling like, oh, whoa, whoa, everybody, oh, settle down. The two tramps are going to take an old joke, split it between the two of them, and that turns it into a sketch. Okay, can I hazard a guess? I don't know, but can I hazard a guess as to why they do that? I'm thinking because in maybe most of the studio-based sketches, you've got even maybe a couple of seconds of preamble, you've got people coming and going, whatever it may be, whereas those sketches begin with them already there. And so if you didn't have that little preamble, the laughter and applause from the previous item would probably then encroach on the first Ah, yes. That's good. Good. Good point. Yes. That's clever. I wish I thought of that. And then, of course, you know, Ronnie C does his monologue and we have the mini film at the end. It's a fantastic format for Christmas night. I know Gary has his own ideas of what the two Ronnies should have done on Christmas night. Well, no, we we don't need to go into that. No, let's talk about that. It's an amusing idea. I think we're watching a menu rundown for Christmas night 
and it just shows the two Ronnies as circus strongmen and they're just striding around the ring. And Gary said that should have been it. They should have been on for an hour just striding around the ring so that you could just look up and go, ah, there they are. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and then just gone back to whatever you're doing. And every time you look up, there's the reassuring presence of the Ronnies. They're not talking. They're not demanding your attention. They're just strutting. That isn't actually what I thought you were referring to. I thought you were referring to my idea about the new oh, Ronnies. Oh, not the new Ronnies. No, that's Baroque. We haven't got time to discuss well, that. Well, yes. It basically involves two television channels and possibly a radio. We'll cover that at some point in the future. Oh, yes. I'm glad you reminded me. Christmas Night, Channel 5, there is a new documentary with extended footage of the sketches from the two Ronnies Australian shows they did two series in australia and apparently there's going to be quite a lot of material in there plus family and friends of the, the ronnie's reminiscing about the time that they spent in australia and so on so that's a nice little twist from the norm it's not the stuff that everybody's used to so yeah i'm looking forward to that at christmas main news which i presume hadn't changed very much in the space of four and a half hours five to ten and then the good news till is that everybody can pause their podcast at this point and they can actually watch the next programme, both above board and legally, because Christmas Night Wogan is available on the BBC iPlayer. All you got to do is just go to the iPlayer, search Wogan, and you'll find it there. Christmas Night 1984 It's part of a curated collection of talk shows, and there it is. And so who have we got on this Christmas Night with Wogan? We have Freddie Starr, Dame Kira Takanawa, and Elton John. And by the time Elton John is on, I start thinking, is this a white flag? That's the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Maybe there's a certain amount of white flag waving going on here. Uh, Freddie Starr does his usual thing. He always takes things an extra mile, but the discipline isn't necessarily there. Kira Takanawa is very charming. Elton John, there's no real revelations or anything like that. And he's not maybe at the best point of his life. I, I don't know. I haven't watched Rocket Man. I'm assuming that at the centre of the film is Christmas Night 84's Wogan appearance. And then, live via satellite, as far as Wogan's concerned, this is obviously all pre-recorded for us, is Victoria Principal. And we then had to dash to our Googles and research this. So apparently there'd been a bit of televisual history between Terry Wogan and Victoria Principal. So, yeah, Victoria Principal, who I believe was in Dallas, is this the case? Yes. She previously appeared on Wogan, and even though I get the impression that she herself didn't have any problem with the interview, Wogan being his usual cheeky, jovial self, the interview had attracted quite a few complaints to the BBC and people saying that he'd been rather rude. So I think her character had had a baby and he talked about the ugly baby and there was a particular character he referred to as the poison dwarf. He was razzing her, I guess you might say. We haven't seen the original interview, but I don't think it's like Parkinson and Meg Ryan. But it was decided that maybe a rematch was in order. And Victoria Principal gives as good as she gets. She has some pretty good comebacks herself. I don't know if she's spontaneously witty or if there was any sort of pre-interview that gave her a lead. Whatever, it works. And apparently it was a really well-rated show. I think, did you say it was the highest rated Wogan that was? I saw something indicating that that was the case, yes. But I didn't actually go all the way to double check, so I'm sorry. And meanwhile, as you alluded to earlier in the proceedings, whilst all of this is going on, from the last 25 minutes or so of Just Good Friends, it is the television premiere in the UK of Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981 over on ITV. And this is going to get a whopping rating. We'll come to the ratings shortly. But don't worry if you miss now on your Christmas night chat, because after the news... 
you have Des O'Connor at 10.45. So both channels, for large periods of the day, both channels are sort of aping the other one in their structure. It's only really when you get to Raiders of the Lost Ark that they really sort of deviate because... As we heard before, BBC's concentrating on homegrown material, whereas ITV's making a real big song and dance about this, saying, well, hey, look, it's that film you know, that everybody's always going on about. This is it. There is a film on BBC One, and it is a film that previously debuted on Christmas Night. Christmas Night 1968, to be precise. Tilt. Tell us all about the all-time great movie for Christmas Night. Some like it's hot at 5 to 11, which is quite lit. It ends at 10 to 1. It's something I associate, again, with Christmas is classic movies. And they even have a little best movies of all time still that I assume is in Pres Bay or B. <laughs> Maybe in the uh, the noddy symbol. Using uh, some bit of inside chat there for Pres fans. It's something I associate with Christmas that classic movies are going to be dragged out. Was 84 the year of Citizen Kane and the absolutely terrifying illustration in the Radio Times? Christmas is in the 90s I associate with Thames Silence and Photoplay Productions doing, I remember a restored version of Nosferatu one year. Uh, there was a Harold Lloyd season on Channel 4 one year. So that's another televisual standby is it's time to bring out the big old movies. There's plenty of black and white action on television at Christmas. And part of me is thinking that this in itself is something of a video recorder Christmas thing. You're tired now. You're not going to be staying up, but maybe, maybe just before you turn it 5 to 11, you can press record and go to bed. And we're glad that at least somebody did, because that meant that we got closed down. But we'll come to that. Uh, again, this was the first time you'd ever watched this film, wasn't it, Gary? And you thought it was good. And I'm not the least bit surprised. Yeah, it's Billy Wilder. It's well-structured. It's well-written. It has forward momentum. Also, the fact that this is almost two hours long, and yet, personally speaking, I don't think there was anything in there that was a lull. There was nothing that didn't need to be there. It tells the story beautifully it actually got to the point where i was thinking now hang on a second because we had a plot right at the outset and where's that gone and as soon as i thought that that plot came back in it was a delight for christmas night viewing this i think is christmas night viewing this is not something where it's like it's on but you're doing all things this is when everybody else is cleared off and you've got the tv to yourself in the living room on christmas night and then you can actually enjoy something I know that ITV makes a last-minute bid for viewers because Close Down is at 10 to 1 on BBC One. And at 10 to 1 on ITV, it's peace. Jill Neville meets some people, or Gil Neville, meets some people who are attempting to bring peace to different parts of the globe. So there's last 10 minutes. Everybody else is closed down. It's like, way we're the last one on air. Fantastic. Well, before that, they've got some TV movie. It's a thriller with Walter Brennan called Home for the Holidays. I think by that point, you've already decided on your course. You, you've either joined Des or you've joined some like it hot. And you're not going to switch halfway through. There we have it. So that has taken us to 10 to 1. Got a lovely wee close down there. This is a strange thing because when it comes to the clock, this is a clock that takes us into the news and the clock for close down. It's a seasonal clock, but it's not got any snow people on it. And yet, when it comes to the national anthem, there they all are, the snow people. I'm trying to remember what year it was where it was decided that the regular BBC ident, the Globe, would accompany 88, 89, something. It was decided that the Christmas ident was too frivolous, and yet I believe the animated Christmas tree with all the bits of holly dancing around it <laughs> had been used previously. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the best thing about the animated 
holly tree is that it is the idea that takes us into the most depressing christmas night ever 86 we've we've said our piece about 86 in a couple of previous shows so well that's that well it is i'm done well yeah it is but it isn't because we've we've got things to round up we've got to actually tie the ribbon on the well yeah we've got to turn the tv off unplug it from the wall socket put back in the box it came in and take it back to the shop we bought it from (laughs) every night okay i'm gonna ask you to hazard a guess now and this is extremely unfair because I actually have the answers in front of me, but I'm going to ask you to hazard a guess as to which were the particularly high-rated shows that were on over Christmas 84. I've got a couple of sources here. I've got an interesting little aside when it comes to the ratings for 84, and then the big reveal that we promised in podcast number I'm going one. to say Poppins pulled them in. Queen usually does well. Now, Just Good Friends and Raiders of the Lost Ark are up against each other. But maybe there's, I don't know, maybe there's not that much crossover. I'm going to say Raiders of the Lost Ark probably won the night, even though I didn't watch it. Why didn't I watch it? Was it my parents wouldn't let me watch ITV? No, it's because even then I would have rather watched the two Ronnies. And Raiders of the Lost Ark clashes with the two Ronnies. I'm watching the two Ronnies. Well, I'm going to break a rule here. We don't normally do because we wouldn't normally deal in anything akin to copyright infringement here. But just for the sake of completeness, I am going to quote a printed article from a publication, in this case, Television Today, accompanying the stage. I'm going to quote it in full. But if you like this information, then do take a subscription to British Newspaper Archive, where you can actually get the whole of the stage archive and lots of other newspapers as well. So hopefully they will forgive this outrageous transgression as we go through the details. The headline, and this is from the edition of Television Today, January 10th, 1985. The headline is ITV claims its films were top. Okay, we've got here. According to the ITV company's interpretation of early ratings... (laughs) (laughs) See, if you turn this bar chart upside down, I think you'll find, actually. (laughs) So... ITV's film Raiders of the Lost Ark that was shown on Christmas Day 8.30 was seen by 19 million viewers, the largest audience for any programme over the three-day Christmas period. At this time, BBC was showing Just Good Friends, followed by The Two Ronnies. BARB released the Christmas viewing figures earlier this week, and Thames, on behalf of the ITV companies, interpreted the figures and compiled a list of the 20 most-watched programmes and the size of their audiences. BBC said that it had received the same information as the ITV companies, but it was waiting for the official figures to cover the 12-day period before interpreting them. According to the ITV companies, the audiences over the Christmas period were as follows. Second to Raiders of the Lost Ark was the film Airplane, shown on ITV on Boxing Day, with 18.48 million viewers. In joint place, with an audience of 17.46 million viewers, were Granada's Coronation Street on Christmas Eve and the film Mary Poppins, shown on BBC One on Christmas Day, 10 past 3. Joint fifth position were Blankety Blank and Just Good Friends, watched by 15.4 million people. Thames' Jim Davidson Falkland special shown on Christmas Eve. BBC series Heidi High shown on Christmas Day. And the film Escape to Victory shown on BBC One Boxing Day shared seventh place with 14.9 million viewers. In joint tenth position, 14.38 million viewers were the Paul Daniels Magic Christmas Show and Dallas, which was on BBC on Boxing Day. 13.35 million watched What's My Line on Christmas Eve, Minder on Boxing Day, and Coronation Street on Boxing Day. In joint 15th position were Thames' Bring Me Sunshine and Des O'Connor Tonight, which both received 12.84 million viewers. 
whilst the two Ronnies on Christmas Day received 12.32 million viewers. BBC One's Wogan, shown on Christmas Day, received 11.81 million. So there you have it, except that you sort of don't, because that doesn't tell the full story. It's not that Thames interpretation is outrageous or anything like that, but would you believe that none of those shows were actually the most watched programme over the Christmas period? The precise figure for Raiders of the Lost Ark was 19.35 million viewers. Now, even though I've got it here as equal, I have seen it listed elsewhere that this actually did just pip Raiders of Lost Ark. I'm very happy to be corrected on that if this is not the case, but my understanding is that the most watched program over the Christmas period was actually a repeat of Porridge, which I think was on the 27th of December on BBC One. Which led to the interesting reaction from Michael Red himself. Now then... Here's the thing about this. Going to come to that in a minute. There's just a couple of other things I wanted to throw in here, by the way. Kramer versus Kramer, which was on later on in the week, did exceptionally well for BBC. I got 18 million viewers. Also, quite phenomenally, a repeat of Russ Abbott's Hogmanay Madhouse, now renamed Scottish Madhouse. A repeat of that actually got 17 million viewers on ITV. It was first shown two years previously. Most popular programme on BBC Two that week was an episode of MASH. And on Channel 4... With 5.65 million viewers, it was, of course, The Baron Knights. There you go. Now, it doesn't have it as a repeat down here. So, did The Baron Knights have a new show? Is that show? Twice Nightly or what Well, was no, because it wasn't Twice Nightly 83. Yes, okay. Because I have a feeling Twice Nightly might have been repeated at some point. And for a while, I was convinced that I was completely wrong. Remember it ever being on Christmas Day, but it was on Christmas Day one year and then not another year. So, here's the thing about this. Previously, we had seen this comment from Michael Grade in which he reflected on the huge rating success, almost 20 million, of a nine-year-old repeat of a Christmas episode of Porridge that year. And then he made this comment about how we're looking into making more of them. And this just set our antennas off. And we're thinking, well, how? What would they have done? How would they have done it? And so on. Would it have been like a flashback or something? Because we're given to understand the end of going straight, the Fletcher has gone straight and what have you. Behold, an article from the Aberdeen Evening Express. This is before Christmas. So this is before the super duper rating comes in for Porridge. Ronnie Barker, who stars in The Two Ronnies on Christmas Evening, is willing to revive the old lag Fletcher for another series of Porridge. There's a repeat of a classic episode of the show later this week, but Barker believes there is still more mileage in the character. It's been about seven years now since Fletcher left prison. We did one series going straight about Fletcher on the outside, but I think he could well have gone back to his old tricks. It would be fun to have him slung back into prison. No, it wouldn't. So there you have it, from Ronnie Barker himself. You see, we'd read that Michael Grade quote. had said something about talking to Ronnie Barker about doing more shows. Is he talking about doing more porridge, or is he just talking about doing more shows that have Ronnie Barker at their centre? But no, no, I'm, I'm so glad that didn't happen. He also mentions, because the article refers to the fact that there's going to be a new series of Open All Hours. David Jason will once again play Barker's much put-upon nephew. I didn't think he'd want to come back to a supporting role, said Barker, but he has agreed. It's actually very kind of him. And of course, yeah, the last series of Open All Hours was in 85, by which time, of course, Only Fools and Horses is an established success. What if David Jason hadn't gone back? What would they have done? Would they have had like a new Granville or something? I mean... Yeah, I imagine there'd be a character, a suspiciously similar substitute. So there we have it. 
almost. I have one item here. I've labeled this as big reveal. So we're both in agreement that 84 Christmas, it's pretty good, isn't it? How different it could have been though. Now I have to admit that I only have a printed copy of Grade's speech to the Royal Television Society. So I can't, for example, tell if the text of this actually had in brackets, pause for laughs at the end of this paragraph. But I've got a funny feeling I know how this line would have been interpreted by the audience of TV execs. Grade, November 84, says to the audience, we're going to be making more homegrown shows, not just comedy and drama, but also serials such as EastEnders. Our new bi-weekly serial, which will play on Mondays and Wednesdays at 7.30 starting on Christmas Day against Raiders of the Lost Ark. I have to admit that my first reaction was the same as yours. I was like, whoa! I mean, obviously, he's not going to do it. He's not just going to suddenly publish the Christmas listings right in front of all of his competitors in the same room. But were they even toying of the idea of doing that? And do you know what? In between, because we'll let you into Secret Fact Fans, part one podcast we recorded 24 hours earlier than this one now, in between us recording part one and part two, the penny dropped. And looking back at the quote now, I actually get what he was saying. He says, EastEnders will play on Mondays and Wednesdays at 7.30. Yes, I was thinking that. <laughs> and I like this sort of just the throwaway starting on Christmas Day against Raiders of the Lost Ark. They would not have put it up against Raiders of the Lost Ark, for God's sake. But given how much publicity it had, would they have actually considered maybe doing something like that? And if they had, how different would everything have been? I, I still say that I wish that the public had reacted extremely badly to EastEnders at Christmas 86 and said to the BBC, <laughs> never ever do this to us again. So should we talk about what's going to happen next year? So, considering our track record, is there any point? Why don't we just turn up when we turn up and say, look everybody, we've done something. Yeah, that's my proposal, but we do have a lot of things that we need to watch, that we want to watch, that we want to talk about, and just... Keep your fingers crossed and uh, say that you believe in fairies. And Gary and I will be back in 2020 and maybe we'll finally get round to lame ducks like we promised and all sorts of other good things. Merry Christmas to those of you who celebrate it. To those of you who don't celebrate it, enjoy EastEnders. And yes, indeed. And thank you very much to everybody who has assisted us with this show and to everybody who has been in touch with us over the course of the past year because, of course, we've had all manner of lovely messages on Facebook, on Twitter. We even had a thread on Cooked and Bombed. Yes, that's right. We're, we're and all suggestions beyond. have come from there. So there's, there's a few more things to look at adding. Watching cast starts January. I'm willing. I'm willing to do it. You're the one who kicks off every time I bring this up, saying, come on, it's about time we did watching. Oh, I don't want to do watching, you fud. <laughs> if we can call the podcast that, then <laughs> I'd, I'd go with it. But in the meantime, of course, Jaffa Cakes for Santa is not just for Christmas, but it is indeed for life. And there are many, 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 many Jaffa Cakes for Proust shows in the archives, as well as editions of the Sitcom Club. And you can find each and every single one of them at the award-winning podnose.com, where you also find all manner of other bits and pieces as well, all manner of other podcasts, thousands of them, in fact. You can find us on Twitter, where... What are we on Twitter? We Jaffa's for Proust or something silly? Like just, just I think that, yes. Type we, in we, Jaffa we, we for Proust. Limited. And The Sitcom Club, and we're on Facebook as well, The Sitcom Club. And there you have it. And so we hope that Christmas 2019 
brings you all the television delights that you would wish for yourself. And we will indeed be back in the Roaring Twenties. Feliz Navidad, kids. Feliz Navidad.